you both. I'd like to welcome you all to the IFHP lecture with Young Gale, um, hosted by Environment and Planning at RMIT University. Young Gale's lecture tonight epitomizes the vision of RMIT and Environment and Planning to be global in outlook, urban in orientation, and connected to the professions. I'd also like to welcome you to the Capitol Theatre, RMIT is well known for its buildings further up Swanston Street, but it's less well known that it bought the Capitol Theatre here back in 1999. And if you haven't done so already, then I definitely recommend you, that you take five minutes or so to have a look round at, after the end of the lecture. It's a fabulous building. It was opened in 1924, designed by Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Marnie, and originally seated over 2,100 people. And the interior design was especially based on organic design principles. Its key feature was that the 3D ceiling, which you can see above you, was lit by thousands of tiny colored lamps, which changed color in time with the orchestral scores for silent films. And unfortunately, we haven't got it working tonight. It's, it's being restored, but not yet. Before I introduce Jan, I also have some special welcomes and thanks. A special welcome to Ms. Coralie Leon, who is the Honorary President of EROF, and Mr. Casey Leon, Council Member of EROF. Um, and my thanks, I act to, to Bo, especially, for organizing this, and to Dennis Ingerman. Um, my thanks also to Ben Bucknell from RMIT for the marketing, the publicity, and running around and to Professor David Haywood. And my special thanks to IFHP and to Metalurth Rasmussen from Copenhagen for making it all possible. Okay, to Jan Geyer. He's, he's Professor of Architecture at the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts in Copenhagen and visiting professor in universities in at least nine international countries. He's the founding partner of Gale Architects Urban Quality Consultants. He's also been awarded the Sir Patrick Abercrombie Prize for Exemplary Contributions to Town Planning by the International Union of Architects, as well as an honorary doctorate degree from Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh. He's honorary fellow of Institutes of Architects and of Planners in the UK, America, Canada, Scotland, and in Australia. He's very well known for his work on the form and use of public spaces, and he's written several seminal texts, commencing with the one that probably most people would know, Life Between Buildings, which was translated into English in 1987. This was followed by Public Spaces, Public Life in 1996, about Stuart in Copenhagen, the very long pedestrian street. New Urban Spaces in 2001, and Cities for People in 2010, which describes why looking after people is crucial for the quality of cities in the 21st century. The transformations carried out in cities such as Copenhagen, Melbourne, Sydney, New York, and work that Jan is presently preparing in Moscow serves as examples of the new people-oriented direction in planning. After de decades of neglect, Cities for People is once again elevated to a central theme in architecture, urban design, and urban planning. 
I personally first heard Jan speak in Perth in 1995, but he's consulted all over the world, including London, New York, China, and especially in Australia. And he's here in Melbourne, I think for the fourth or fifth time. And he was here um, in 2004, he produced the Places for People report, which again, several people will be familiar with. Jan is especially known for his people-first approach, and his website says that his focus is on the relationship between the built environment and people's quality of life, which is really what he's going to give a talk about tonight. So with no more ado, I invite Jan Gale to the lectern to speak on tonight. Does it work? It works. Good evening. And thank you for coming out, all of you, in this very hot evening. It's wonderful to be in a sauna with so many nice people. Um, yeah, I think I'll quote my mother first. My mother said that one of the worst problems of being older is that you have to live up to your own, reput own reputation. And I, I feel that very strongly because going down here, I realized, to my horror, that less than two years ago, I was giving a major talk over just over in the city hall on the other side um, about the same subject, and that that somebody has put it on the internet and it's still there and I looked into it and say oh my god two years ago all my jokes are gone now all my best slides are gone what do I do I still don't quite know what I am to do so I decided to divide my my talk tonight tonight in two parts the first part is the thing I'm not going to talk about because I talked about it two years ago. It's on the internet and all that. And then I'll talk about what I'm going to talk about. So first comes this part which I'm not go going to talk about. I am I am definitely not going to talk about all this story of my life which I told uh, over in the town hall some years ago about how I graduated in the 60s. And, and how I was trained as a good modernist, how we were lying, building cities with objects and learning that cities were bad. Actually, streets and squares were bad and freestanding buildings were good and running out of school to, to do all this in real life and, uh, and, and then meeting um, and marrying a psychologist in 1960 who had once started to say, why are you architects not interested in people? That was very, uh, I'm not going to talk about that, but that was very, a very important event in my life because uh, she was actually right. Uh, and, and it took me 52 years to think about that. I'm still thinking about it. I hurried hurry back to School of Architecture uh, to start to study about people why architects are not interested in people and what kind of 
of things there were about this. And I, I, I tried for 40 years in university, I did everything to get rid of my education and find out what architecture and planning really should be about. Not what I learned in School of Architecture, but something with people, that we are doing it for people. I'm not going to talk about that. I have, as mentioned, made a number of books, which is the best thing I've done in my life. I've, I've, I've worked with Rob Adams, and that was fine. That was great. Several times, actually over many years, great. But the greatest thing I've done in my life is really to write it down and see it being spread to all parts of the world and seeing that in this humble little PhD of mine from 1971 is now being used all over the world in, in, in developing countries and they find this inspiring to put the people more centrally in the planning and architectural process. That can make an older soul very, very proud. Um, I've even realized that all my books have come out in China, and, and that's, I'm very proud about that. And then I realized that they have also bought them. And then I realized also that they had no time to read them. Um, but you can't win them all. But maybe with more time, they will have time to read them and we'll see things. Then, all this is what I'm not going to talk about. Then, of course, this, I cannot say stinking rich Danish foundation because one of the members from the foundation is here tonight. So, so it's just a rich and, and, and very generous and, and, and enlightened foundation. They came to me uh, some years ago and said, Jan, we would like you to sit down and write down everything you know while you can still remember it. And I said, I, I, I have no time. I have to go to Melbourne and give a lecture or whatever. And they said, isn't that a question of how many assistants we can give you? And then they started to say, there's one for layout and one for research and one for... And after a while, I said, oh, I think I've got time now. So we did Cities for People, which is the truth, the whole truth, and everything. Um, but the truth, and um, as you can see, it's come out already after two years in all the major languages of the world, like Romanian and, and Czech and Danish and... Even in French, after 40 years, my first book is out in French because they have been very active down in France doing something else and have not really... But now they've started to take an interest in people and that I'm very proud of. I've just been in Paris and they thought that all this stuff about people and cities would be a bombshell for the arrogant French architects. Well, I, they welcome, they can do it. It was not published, of course, in, in France. It was published in Montreal. Uh, but now it's been, been uh, secretly imported to France and been, it's been distributed down there, and I'm very proud ab about that. Um, I was not going to talk much. This is what I'm not... Because I talked about that two years ago over in the city hall. Um, we have... 
We have a few books actually here out in, in the foyer and, and I'm, I'll be sitting here until midnight writing dedications if you like to have the truth, all the truth, nothing but the truth. But that's of course up to you, what you like. I'll write. This book, and that is again what I'm not going to talk about, but in this book, I mean, it's really centered around that Around 1960, we had two important changes of, of paradigm. One was that the, the cheap petroleum and the, the motor cars really invaded our society. And for 50 years, our society has been completely obsessed with finding more capacity for more traffic and finding more parking spaces. And as if that, that the happiness of, of motor cars have been the major concern in our societies. It's, it's worse, it's, it's, it's not too good in Australia, but it's much worse in uh, in the United Kingdom, I can tell you. It is not very glorious in Romania either, in Bucharest. But I think that now when they have my book in Bucharest, it will soon be sorted out. Um, the other paradigm which started really to have great influence at the same time was the paradigm of modernism and the whole idea of separating functions and leaving the city behind and starting to do freestanding buildings. Uh, <clears throat> um, here we are. And that was the beginning of the Brasilia syndrome, which has really been very, very serious for the profession of architecture and professional planning, where we were hovering over the models and putting up these objects. And when we had the composition right from 2,000 feet, then, wow, this is it. This guy, Professor Lindström, is from Sweden, and he was the one who said that if a housing area looks fine from the freeway, it's a good housing area. Um, I call it the Brasilia syndrome because Brasilia was the first city, really, and it was in 1955 it, the, that competition was won, but that was the first really big city which was based on the modernistic principle. Brasilia is absolutely wonderful <coughs> from an aeroplane. You can Go over Brasilia and you can really see the great idea, the, uh, the city as an eagle and the head of the eagle being the parliament. You can go down in a helicopter and go around the rooftop height and see how beautifully the, uh, the, the singular buildings are spaced, placed freely on the grass and how these big parks are streaming through the city. It's a fantastic city from the helicopter and from the aeroplane. Unfortunately, <coughs> down at eye level, it's shit. <laughs> because as part of modernism, nobody was looking after where people were. Everybody was up in helicopters and, 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 and aeroplanes and putting their objects here and there in a fantastic composition. And I think Brasilia <coughs> could still be a wonderful place if all the Brazilians had a helicopter, but somehow they have not managed to get helicopters enough for them. 
So they are just walking and walking around in the most lousy um, conditions. So this to me is, is modernism and the weakness of modernism. And also it's a sign that around 1960, the profession of architects and the profession of planners, they forgot about people and started on other themes of going up and, and organizing these uh, ensemble of buildings. <coughs> All this is, of course, what I'm not going to talk about, so we'll skip over it and say that we are still doing it. We just call it Dubai and other things, and we still have this architectural profession who love freestanding objects. We have the birdsheet architects who go all over the world and drop their various towers. Um, so that has really been very serious, this, this um, paradigm of modernism and the Brasilia syndrome. Here you can see the usual suspects hovering over the model. And if it looks like the town hall in Sydney, it's a coincidence. Uh, actually, these good people, they offered to be model for my book. I needed some models, so they were fiddling. But look at this other one, which is a contemporary plan for Newtown in, in Holland. And you can almost hear them saying, wouldn't it be smart with two oval buildings? Oval buildings, for God's sake, that would be scary. And what about some come cubes and turning them 45 degrees to, ah, that's, that's it. That we just missed some 45 degrees and painting them a little bit yellow. And so it is a wonderful plan for a new town in Holland. But what are the Dutchmen doing walking to school and being old and bicycling around in this landscape? Nobody has really taken that seriously. We also have in these 50 years, and have seen in the profession of architects an increasing obsession with form. <coughs> We've had all the architects go around and doing these objects which are more and more uh, complicated and um, you go to Dubai and go up and down in Dubai and you realize it's just like back, back in the bathroom, my wife's shelf with perfume bottles, that everybody tried to twist them in a way which is more interesting than the other guys. And you don't get a city by having a collection of perfume bottles. What really is important is not the skyline, but where these buildings land in the ground and how they are connected and how they are, they, the public spaces are organized. And you think it cannot be any worse, but it can. This is Frank Gehry in, 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 uh, in Brooklyn. They don't like it very much in Brooklyn. They think they have a fine uh, neighborhood in Brooklyn. But, but still, this is supposed to make them more happy. And, and we will have to see if, if that is correct. I'm quite sure it's not. <clears throat> So we've had these paradigms for 50 years. They are luckily petering out, both of them, but still they are around. And if you think that the people in this world at any time really liked this kind of city building, you have to think again, because the world is full of 
posters and cartoons and expressions of displeasure with this kind of human environments and urban habitat for Homo sapiens. And it's, it's even worse maybe the discomfort in Australia, but here they at least have pinpointed who the culprits might be. So it has been in many ways 50 years where not much concern for the daily day life of people at eye level and five kilometers an hour has been on the agenda. People have been literally invisible in city planning for quite a while, a long while. So the question of my wife and her colleagues, why are you architects not interested in people, it was really correct. And going around, having spent my life very much in schools of architecture and going around in the world and seeing many schools, including a spell of teaching at RMIT and University of Melbourne and, and many other places, I can testify that hardly any school of architecture have any serious program about people and architecture and people and cities. And planning schools, neither. Even landscape schools, anyway, the landscapers are down on their knees anyway, but they have also been more and more obsessed with form and they have been into uh, sustainability and ecology and biology and they also don't get much training about or knowledge about what is good for people. Um, they are into other issues. So, basically one could say that people have played a very little role in the professions which look after the habitat of Homo sapiens. And then we can conclude, of course, that these professions are not interested in people. No, no, no. Not so. Whenever we make any drawing and go to any client with our project, it will be teeming with hybrid people going aimlessly around in the environments, showing that it's a very, very good environment. And they, we call it um, unspecified public life. That means people just going aimlessly around in ways they will never do. And it's, it, it doesn't matter really where it is, but in most cases, everybody in, in these houses are out at the same time. Nobody has influenza or anything. They're all out and showing off how lucky and happy they are with this environment. Regardless of the quality of the environment, all drawings are like that. Here is from Barangaroo in Sydney, and you can see that every person in Sydney is down there to enjoy the new projects in Barangaroo. Uh, so really architects and planners have been are very, very they like people and they they really care for them, sort of, at least on the drawings. In the real life it could be different because this is maybe Norman Foster in London, a nice promenade where you can walk in London and have a jolly good time. This is a bench by Rem Kohlhaas where you can sit and think about philosophy, I think, <laughs> um, whatever. 
all this I'm not going to talk about, so we'll skip over it. And, and if I had, if, if I was in the, into that mode of, of, of talking about all these paradigms and the change of paradigms, I would have ended by telling about this humble little housing area in Copenhagen, which looks very, very bad from an aeroplane and very, very bad from the helicopter. And down at eye level, it has all the qualities you can ask for. And then you realize that they have the highest, one of the highest real estate prices in Copenhagen and this area. And more interestingly, it has the highest concentration of architects in Denmark. They are living here, all of them, and they have no helicopters. They are just enjoying themselves down at eye level. And my point, my point here is that if you have not too much time and energy and you can treat it in the big scale, in the intermediate scale or in the people scale, I will advise you to spend your energy where people are, make sure that the small scale is wonderful because these people down here, they have no time to think about that it doesn't look fantastic from a balloon or from an aeroplane. They're just sitting there chatting and looking after the kids and having a jolly good time. And they, they care very little about what it looks like from the aeroplane. That was what I could have talked about if I, if I had chosen to do that. Um, and also in this area of what, what I'm not going to talk about today, was um, that actually, definitely, after 50 years, we have a change of paradigms. We are now increasingly working with new paradigms. We are very interested in having lively, livable cities, attractive cities, safe cities, and certainly sustainable and healthy cities. And then comes the point that if you are sweet to pedestrians and sweet to bicyclists, then actually you're addressing all these items in a new paradigm. And just to mention a few of the things, we are increasingly interested in life. Jane Jacobs talked about it 50 years ago, the death and life of cities. And if we can choose between living in a lively environment or in a deserted and empty environment, all of us would, would choose to live in the lively environment where we can meet face-to-face -face our fellow citizens, where we can enjoy the greatest joy man has, which is man. And with smaller families, with more privatized lifestyles, with bigger and bigger residences further and further away from each other, and with more and more leisure time, with longer, with longer time of living, the aging situation, with all these changes in society, we get increasingly more interested in life and other people and in places where we can meet um, the society and meet our fellow citizens. And whenever in the world I've been involved in making places, spaces for people, the people have come out in great numbers and has been almost impossible to chase home again because they're having such a good time. Sometimes I have said that a good city is like a good party. You can always tell a good city 
by the fact that people stay much longer than they plan to stay. You know, you have parties and you have three parties, three type of parties. You have the party when you think that this is going, this is going to be an awful party and you find an excuse and phone them and say, oh, we would have lot to comfort, unfortunately. And then there's the other party where you get this image, oh, it looks really good, and you look forward, you get the babysitter to come, and at 10.30 you whisper to your wife, we have to get out of this, and then at 11 you go up to the host and say, oh, we are enjoying ourselves immensely, but we have the babysitter and we have to go. And then there's the third party where you have organized a babysitter until 12 o'clock and suddenly it's 3.30 in the morning. Because you have been so indulging in social and recreational activities and you have really enjoyed yourself and forgot the time. Good parties last long. Good cities are where people spend a lot of time. And with change in life situation, we can see more and more interest in life and livability in cities. Also, a people-oriented city actually is a very important ingredient in creating a more sustainable cities because the more you walk and the more you bicycle, the better. But in the future, where we increasingly will have to go by public transportation because we cannot and not have resources to have a rubber wheel in each corner of each nine billion people in the world. So we will increasingly use uh, public transportation and public transportation and public realm, they are brothers and sisters. A good public transportation system needs a jolly good environment where you can walk down to the bus or the light rail or the train or you can bicycle down there and go back again in safety and comfort all times of the day. So, and then finally, uh, in this new paradigm, we are increasingly, and for good reason, obsessed with the health of our populations, that we thought that maybe all these wonderful mechanical things would give us a good life, but it's given us, in many cases, a shorter life. And the idea that everybody for the benefit of themselves, for the good of their health, would go twice a week to the fitness center and sit in a rowing machine for two hours. That is not durable. Some people go there all their life, <coughs> but most people don't come near. And even if people are very dedicated to do it, they realize after half a year that all the intention came to two visits and that was it. So the idea everybody going to visit fitness centers to get fit, that has been proven not to work. And that's why we can see cities now saying that the best thing we can do for, for health, for livability, and for reduction of the health cost is to make cities where people will move naturally, where you walk and you bike, because that's the obvious thing to do. Uh, so we can see this paradigm coming in very strongly. Sometime along the road, something went terribly wrong. All this was what I was not going to talk about because I talked about it two years ago, and you can still remember it, all of it, I'm afraid of. So we'll talk more about the future, about livable cities for the 21st century, 
and we'll talk. I'll talk about <coughs> cities which are made for this new paradigm of livability, attractive city, sustainable and healthy city. And of course, um, I have been talked into making yet another book. I'm very surprised, but we are doing now a book about how. We certainly did not know anything about people in the 60s when all these paradigms started to unfold. People throughout the history of human settlement, all the cities were made for people because people were very close to the production process and, and generations after generations delivered their experience to the next generation. We built one house at a time, we built along streets and squares based around the human body. And so people were looked after throughout until we started to professionalize the planning and make the architecture in really big installments. And then there was nobody to, to take this tradition of people-oriented architecture and cities onward. And We didn't know anything about that the way we built would have an influence of, of people's life. But now we know for sure that we shape the cities, but then the cities certainly shape us. We shape the buildings, and the buildings shape in many ways our way of life. And in this new book, we are trying to tell the history of trying to make people visible and all the work which has done and standing here in Melbourne I have the fondest memory of working with the students from the University of Melbourne and for IMIT in the 70s in 76 and again in 78 we did some substantial studies about how people used normally normal residential streets in various parts of Melbourne we learned a fantastic lot and I remember one of the students saying one day maybe Jan we can't prove anything but we bloody well saw it and uh, we saw the fantastic influence of the configuration of the streets and the life which was played out in that street and that street and the difference between the inner suburbs and the suburbs and the single-family houses and the terrace houses we picked up a lot of in information, and that has been going on for now 50 years, and now we know a lot. And we also owe a lot to the grandmother of this humanistic planning tradition, um, Jane Jacobs, who wrote her book also 50 years ago. Hardly had the modernistic planners and the transport planners starting their big rush to a new future than Jane Jacob raised her voice from Greenwich Village in New York and said, if these guys are let loose with the modernistic and motoristic ideas, that will be the end of the of the that will be the end of the life of the great American cities and the beginning of the death of cities. And tomorrow when the study group will go down in Docklands, you can see some of the outline of of, of if the modernists have too much say, their life may not have so good a time. 
Uh, but that's another story. She started a fantastic tradition. There's not been many working along the lines of her, but she said, go out there and see what works and what doesn't work and learn from reality. Look out of your windows. Spend time in streets and squares and places where people are and see how homo sapiens actually use spaces and learn from that and use it, my friends, 50 years ago. And this whole story we are trying to put together, and that's been very, very interesting um, to put this story together. And now we actually have seen this change of paradigm, that we can see cities increasingly doing what we call humanistic or people-oriented city planning, and we can see cities doing a very, very simple exercise saying that in this city we'll do everything to invite people to walk as much as possible and to bicycle as much as possible, not on the Sundays only, but in the course of their daily day life. And we can really make the city planning in such a way that actually you move naturally in the course of your ordinary daily day life. I shall take you to my hometown of Copenhagen and another 50 years anniversary just about. And uh, <clears throat> because 50 years ago, the main street of Copenhagen, as one of the first major streets in the world, was pedestrianized. There was a lot of screaming about that it will never work and all the shops will go broke and we were Danes, we were not Italians, we will never come out of the houses and it will never work in the Nordic climate, it was too cold and you could you could really ruin your city by pushing back the cars which had invaded the city. So, in good Danish tradition, it was done anyway. So, they pushed the cars out, and next year, just a year later, it was a roaring success. It's been a success ever since. And that was the start of a change of mindset that maybe it's a good idea to do some more for people. And in Copenhagen, we started in the city center 50 years ago, and actually in Copenhagen they've been at it now for 50 years. They've had this idea that if you do it slowly, nobody notices, and gradually the city becomes better and better. We had this wonderful traffic engineer who took away 3% of the parking every year, and he said, if, we, if they can't park, they won't drive. That is correct. And he also said, if you remove parking slowly and don't tell anybody, nobody will notice. And uh, so he did that 3% a year, so we have hardly any parking in Copenhagen anymore. And the city has more visitors, and it's a better city than ever, because he shifted from car lanes into bicycle lanes and to bus lanes and, and, and metro and whatever. And the less traffic you have in the city, the more quality of life you can actually have. That was found out. And what was special about Copenhagen, that was the place where for the first time was pioneered the idea of monitoring <coughs> how people use a city. Because in all these 50 years there's been this fantastic tradition that all the traffic engineers had every statistics in place. They went out every year and counted every car which went here and there, and they had statistics and modeling and they have prognosis, and every time there was 
uh, planning situation, traffic was a major issue of but no city had a department for pedestrians and public life, and no city had any documentation about how the city was used. In Copenhagen, already in the 60s, and that was organized by the university, and that was, had much to do with my PhD, um, then we started to monitor how the city was used. And this monitoring was found to be a very strong tool for the city planners and the politicians. As the mayor said at some point in this process, if you university guys had not provided us with the documentation about people, we politicians would never have dared to make Copenhagen the nicest city in the world. That was her wording. But she realized that it was the documentation which gave her the courage to carry on this humanization process, even if there were opposition from the shops but, and, and, and other businesses. But all this opposition actually faded away because more people came and more money was spent. And that is now beyond any doubt proven that if you are kind to people in the 21st century, it's also good for economy. So we found in this process that the data has, is very data about people is very much the key to making nicer cities, and that is exactly also what in 1993 and 4 uh, was introduced here in Melbourne. That we started a process of monitoring how the city was used. It was kept up in 2004, and we are now planning together with uh, the city of Melbourne that in 2014 we shall make another study of how Melbourne works. And you all know that it was proven that a lot of different changes has happened. And Rob just told me today that from now on they'll not wait 10 years between these things. They'll do it annually so they can follow how people enjoy the city and what can be done to make it a better city. Data we have found is a key in that's New York and whatever. What we found in, in Copenhagen and could prove is that the better it was to walk, the more obvious it was for walking, the more people were walking. We also found that, that the more space you made in the city and the more good quality public spaces you made, the more people lingered and the more they had a big, good party and stayed longer than they expected. It really exploded. We also found that given better spaces for people, the whole way of using the city changed and became actually everybody loved to be in the public realm and they wanted to expand the season as much as they could. And in the beginning, in the 60s, I remember people saying that, that we can never have sidewalk cafes in Copenhagen because the climate is too bad. And then somebody tried to put out a few chairs and they put out more chairs. They were out two months and then now they're out ten months until we had the smoking laws. So now the, the cafes are out 12 months a year and we have no winter anymore in, in Scandinavia and people are out there uh, throughout the year. I remember in, in Melbourne, when I was in the 70s, I asked 
Where are the outdoor cafes? You must be mad, my friend. With the Melbourne climate, the, 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 the climate will change. Every two hours during the day, it will be impossible to have outdoor cafes in Melbourne. Now you have 15,000 seats on the streets. It's the city in the world which has the highest rate of cafe seats um, and the highest rate of people enjoying the city I know of in the world. And the climate is still not good enough. That's, that's, uh, it, it's too cold, you know. Uh, you can go out and see. What we also found a number of things in these investigations. That is the change of the carriage of public life from being very functional to being very squeezed by the traffic to being very focused on shopping. And now the reason for people going to city is more and more about recreation and social enjoyment and about, um, and about culture. So that when we asked 20 years ago, why are you in town? People would say, I'm in town to do some shopping. When we ask people today, why are you in town? The majority will say, I'm in town to be in town. And then I shop a little bit on the side and I see what is offered and I see what's going on and I see the cultural things happening in the city. I see I'm here to enjoy myself. City is a great source of enjoyment. And that has changed from being a place where you went to do primarily your shopping. We also found with this situation that in the old days there were a lot of people in the streets because they were forced to be there. Today, actually, nobody is forced to be on the street, but if we organize with good quality that it's a joy to be on the streets, uh, then we can see uh, a new type of, of use of cities, what we call urban recreation, um, where people come and they sit down and enjoy the city. Also, we have seen increasingly what we, the active part that people do active recreation to keep healthy, they run and jog and walk for life, whatever they do. But all this is very much dependent on the cities being of a nice quality for people, or people will go somewhere else or have other things to do. All the cities which have provided quality for people have seen a fantastic upsurge in the public life. So we can talk a lot about the city centers, but what is what I like most about Copenhagen is they have extended this people-oriented vision to the whole city and saying it's the whole city which shall be inviting for people to walk. We shall make good sidewalks and good solutions all over the city. Uh, in the old days, the streets looked like that up there. Now all of them are two-lane, two-way streets with a good median, with street trees, with bicycle lanes in either side. They are much more beautiful, they are much, much safer, and they can almost take the same amount of traffic because also the traffic engineers have become smarter as years have gone by. I will show you here a little picture of one of the things which are done citywide in a city like Copenhagen, that whenever a small street goes into a big street, the sidewalk and the bicycle lane is taken across a small street. I thought that was wonderful because then you can have benches and trees and this shows that 
pedestrians are just as valuable as anybody else and bicycles are. But then my daughter told me, would you imagine, Jan, that we've got this system now in our neighborhood and that means that the grandchild who is Laura at eight, she can now walk to school because she can stay on the sidewalk all the way to school. And when you are seven or six, it's very important that you can stay on the sidewalk all the way to school, that you don't have to negotiate three streets, three silly side streets. You go walk, you're the king, you walk to your school, and the Mercedes-Benz will have to negotiate some sidewalks. That's, there's nowhere written in the United Nations uh, human rights that whenever you have a side street going into a major street, there should be no obstacles and you could go in either direction. That's something the traffic engineers found out uh, way back in the 50s. Now it's being changed and it has many important things for the life quality or maybe especially the younger ones, all the ones with baby prams and the elderly people who are now with much more leisure walk around uh, for many more years. So it has become step by step a better and better city for, for walking and for people. And Copenhagen now has official a policy saying we will be the best city for people in the world. And one of the one of the really demanding things which is in, in this particular paper strategy is that all of us have to walk 20% more before 2015 and we have to get started really soon to reach this but I think it's a very nice goal of this city. Um, Copenhagen also have done enormously many things for bicycling to invite people to bicycle. They, they have now a complete citywide bicycle, net, bicycle lane network and they are proper bicycle lanes with a curb to the traffic and a curb to the pedestrians, to the sidewalk. All generations can bike. And gradually, gradually, it has been developed into a really efficient uh, transportation network where you can transport everything, including my grandchildren. They can be brought to, to kindergarten. And uh, every third family in Copenhagen have a cargo bike so they can go about with their kids. Um, and that's very nice. And that's, of course, new. And more and more is being done to make it safe. It is absolutely very safe to bicycle in Copenhagen. You may wonder why they have no helmets. And I can tell you that they do a lot to, aim to, to tell you that it's smart to use helmets. One third are doing it now with helmets. We have figured out that if we introduce compulsory helmets in Copenhagen, we could, from one day to the other, halve the enormous amount of bicycling. Because there are many instances where helmets are not so well. And they found that it's much more healthy if, if everybody bikes and bike for many years. That is cheaper in the health system than protect a few daredevils uh, for head injuries in their young years. So they found that it's good health policy not to make it compulsory, but to recommend it as best you can. But there are instances when you go to the tennis club or to the corner store or 
uh, go around with the grandchild, whatever, in, in the neighborhood uh, where, where, you, where you skip the, or when you've been to the hairdresser going on a date. There are many ways where bicycle helmets are not so smart. And I saw some interesting statistics that the, that the city bikes in Melbourne are used much less than the city bikes in Montreal and in, in, in uh, Paris because you have this problem that you cannot just grab a bike and do what you have to do. You have to go to 7-Eleven and buy a helmet first and then um, you can go around. And that is, again, making it more difficult to have a bicycle culture. We don't have this in Copenhagen, but we have more and more and more bicycles and all kinds of things being done. It is being now also completely integrated with the transportation network that you can go by taxi and have your car. And in the trains, you can take your bike for free and you can go, you can really combine things as I can do with my wife. We can go two kilometers on bike and then take the train for 20 kilometers and go another two kilometers on bike and visit my son and, and his family. And it's, it's faster than going by car and then you have a little bit of exercise and fresh air. Very nice. Here is a slide which is quite funny, um, made by Lars Gemser, if you have met him. But he just went around and saw what the bike culture meant for the, for the business culture in his area, that they have 10 bike, bicycle shops invigorating this particular area, that's a little sideshow from the bicycle culture. In Copenhagen now, everybody is biking. It's uh, part of the way of living. And um, pregnant women do it, and businessmen do it, and the mayor goes in bike to, his, to the town hall every day. And just to show you a sign of bicycle culture, this is my, my late mother-in-law, she, she used to visit our house two times a day when she had a little Volkswagen. She came two times a day just to see that everything was all right. And uh, then the doctor said that she, she should not drive anymore. But then she just jumped on. She actually moved closer to where we lived so she could keep up her, her surveillance policy. And then she started to hit our neighborhood twice a day on a bicycle. Great. And she did that for a number of years. And then she got more dizzy. And then for the last five years of her life, she came twice a day still. But now she was dragging the bicycle. And I said, mother-in-law, why are you walking around dragging your bicycle when you are not bicycling anymore? Huh? It's much more sporty to drag a bicycle than to go with one of these. So that's bicycle culture. Actually, with bicycling, you can carry anything um, in a good bicycle city. Um, sorry, what is happening here? Yeah, and even the Crown Prince is doing it. And please note that the little half Australian here is also in, in the bicycle, and that shows that Australians can learn it if they start early. In Copenhagen, we have now these 37% of everybody going to work are doing it on a bicycle. And we also know that 70 continue during 
the winter. Uh, and Copenhagen now has this policy that they also want to be the best for bicycles in the world. So everything is fine. No, it is not. Because we have these awful new problems which we have got in the recent years that the bicycle lanes are completely overcrowded and seriously congested. And that is a major complaint. And the city is now hurriedly doing whatever they can to double the capacity of the bicycle lane system by taking another lane from the motor traffic because there could be five times more people on a bike lane than there can in a car lane. So if there are bicyclists who want to bike, it's good uh, traffic economy to give them more space. And that is part of this cunning traffic engineer. He's saying the less asphalt we give the cars, the less traffic we will have. And that is actually correct. Um, they are also now into very sophisticated bike lane where you have the fast lane on the outside and the slow lane on the inner side. They've been forced to double the capacity in the trains recently and they are now into a big system of relief bike routes who can take the pressure off the bike lanes in the streets and they are building bridges in all kinds of places to make shortcuts and make it easier and they are trying to make it more and more comfortable so that when you come to a red light, you can lean to something and put your feet up and rest the feet a little bit while you wait for the green light. They are really pampering bicycles. You're welcome to bicycle. It's inviting to bicycle. And they are doing things like this where they have these counters where you can see how many people before you today or this year with his bicycle here and there to show you that you are not alone. Actually, in Denmark already by now, 20% of the energy is, is renewable. And Copenhagen has this, um, this uh, goal to be CO2 neutral by 25. And they are working hard to what is the bicyclist are a very important part of this strategy. When we recently had a new government, everybody peeled their eyes when the new government arrived to the Queen on bicycles to get their commissions. And actually you thought maybe they will, the bicycles would be stolen. No. They went straight up to the lifeguard and said, would you look after this one while I go and have a chat with Queenie? And then they got their commissions and then they returned to their offices. That was a strong statement. and 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 something about the times are changing. It is interesting in a city who have this policy to realize that it time after time, uh, of course it's competing with Melbourne every time, but it happens that Copenhagen is number one livable city in the world, and that of course makes every mayor and every citizen very happy. Are there other cities who have such a policy? Yes, there are. There is a city down here in Australia um, where they have, and they can read this book actually, and they have read it very carefully now for, for 30 years, or this kind of literature. And you know all this story about Melbourne, and that's exactly what I'm not going to talk about, the donut. I was here in the 70s, and mind you, 
that was a boring city to be in. Come evening or come Saturday or Sunday, you were sitting out in the student college and you knew that going into the city would be absolutely nothing. Nothing was steering at all. All this, as you know, have been changed by a number of years with a very pointed strategy towards inviting people to use the city more, the, the postcode 3000 strategy, getting more and more people to live in the city, and the, ref and the reconfiguration of a number of places and streets and squares, the introduction of squares, the, the program of, of, the, of the lanes, all this which you can see all over the city, and you can also in Melbourne see this citywide policy of having good bluestone sidewalks and invite people to walk. They have definitely this policy in this city of streets, we walk, and to walk we have to have a very pleasant inviting environment. We need trees so we can walk in shade. We need the most beautiful street furniture in the world. We need art to look at and flowers. There's a lot of concerns and coming to Melbourne, it's such a joy for me to see the enormous degree of concern for people which are citywide. And again, in Melbourne, we can see that if you, if you put your act together, people will react happily by coming and enjoying the city. We've seen, and these are figures from 2004, and we expect to have much, uh, again, a, in, a, a, a remarkable increase in the figures in 2014 when we do the next study. But already in 2004, we could see for the 10-year period that there were many more people in the city. There were four times more people sitting and having a good time and having a good party in the city. And you can see the increase in Burke Street Mall and in Swanson Street, and already at that time there were more people in Swanson Street than there are people walking in Regent Street in London. And that's because Regent Street is not so good as Swanson Street actually. But we are working on Regent now, so it will be, be better. But also Swanson is, is picking up all the time. You know that they found here, as we found everywhere, that what is good for people, what makes a more lively, vital city, is also good for the economy. And of course you know that now Melbourne also is well advanced into the bicycle thing, and, and they are putting in, as you see, see in this paper here from 2005, Copenhagen style bike lanes. And what is Copenhagen style? That is that we have the park cars to protect the bicycles instead of having the bicyclists to protect the park cars. That's very simple, Copenhagen style. And they are doing this in Melbourne throughout. Uh, but then, I, oh, I saw this one down at, near the Docklands, and I have been asked what is going on here? Is this Melbourne? Yeah, but you must understand it's probably the car of the archbishop who is there, and we have to go around the archbishop's car. And no better explanation, but maybe some of you have.
that it, 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 it slipped here. But apart from this, Melbourne is doing a wonderful job. And mind you, Melbourne was, was striving to be the most livable in the world, and it has reached this position several times. And when you look at the most livable cities in the world, you will always see that Melbourne and Copenhagen are fighting for who can be among the five best. It's always the same suspects who are changing places in all these lists. There are three different lists, and Copenhagen and Melbourne are on all of them, and they have this people-oriented policy as a very prominent element in the city planning. Just a little bit north of here, there's a city, I cannot remember the name, but um, they had this significant white building at the waterfront. It's a wonderful city uh, for parties and for Olympics and, and, and summits, but it's certainly not glorious for the everyday life in the city center. It's, it's a very lousy city center they have in this particular city, but they have very much also are now on the track of making a livable city for the 21st century. Just yesterday, I was at a big celebration where we celebrated that after six years of hard work, we are now managed to close George Street and to have money found to make a light rail which can go uh, through George Street from Circular Quay to the Central Station and onward to the University. It it has been decided, the plans are there, they have been um, confirmed, and we celebrated yesterday that the battle for this one was won, and that was a great day for an old planner to see the next city starting to behave um, humanistically. But Sydney has started in other ways, and here we are starting the big bicycle push in Sydney, and we were digging in that corner, and then suddenly I saw the Danish flag flapping in the background, and I said, hey, there's a Danish flag, why is that there? And then there was this little plaque saying that, oh, in this sleazy pub, Mary and Frederick met year 2000. So this was historic ground. It was part of Danish national history on this particular corner where we started the Copenhagen-style bike lane. That was a great moment. But they, they are urged all over the city now. And one thing they do in Sydney very smartly, and I think that's very good and everybody can learn from that, they tell in numbers of posters about their policy of making a green, a green city for walking and biking, and they do it to for the mankind, they do it as an action against climate change, and they are going to do all so many kilometers and this and so many kilometers and that. And of course, being in Melbourne, I can mention that maybe so far Sydney has been better to make posters than to make real uh, projects. But the projects are coming now, and I think it's very important that you tell about your city policy and you tell the citizens that this is not done to harm your parking spot. It is done to save mankind and do make a better city, and it's got good for you and for the economy and for everything, so here we are. And it's interesting, again, that Sydney is on these lists of the most livable 
And actually, I took this other look at it, that it's remarkable that there are six cities here from Europe. There are two from Australia, one from, from, from New Zealand, and uh, then one from, uh, from Asia. And there are, on none of the lists, and there are three lists, and some of them have 33, 35 cities. None of these lists have any city from UK ever mentioned. I had a good talk with Prince Charles about that. He was horrified. Um, and, um, and he did promise to do something about it. And that is because I think that the traffic engineers have ruled Britain for, they've been stronger over there. Colin Buchanan wrote this traffic in cities, and I don't think if it's part of the solution or part of the problem, but the traffic engineers are extremely strong and dominating in all the British cities, and unfortunately, with all the traffic planners who took their training in Britain, that's a few. Um, that's where we have this idea that you shall apply to come across the street. This about having a push button that comes from England and is part of this great idea of traffic in cities. And you can find it in Australia, in New Zealand, in Ireland, and a few other places, but hardly in Europe and never in America. Interesting. Um, so, but there are also more cities who are doing this kind of policy. New York, in 2007, the mayor, Michael Bloomberg, he promised the other C40 cities that this organization of mayors, um, he promised them that New York would be the greenest metropole in the world in no time to speak of. And he had this fantastic plan of getting one million commuter cars out of Manhattan and said that we have the best metro system in the world and we have a flat city and wide streets. Everybody could go by metro, they could walk on the fine sidewalks, and we could have a bicycle system so you could bike and keep healthy. And he introduced uh, this program of 6,000 kilometers of bike lanes in no time to speak of. New York have a lot of people going on the sidewalks, sometimes far too many, but actually they're milling, they're going from the metro, so from subway station to the office and back again. There is hardly a bench in New York and hardly a sidewalk cafe. They could learn something from Melbourne. Here, you enjoy the city. Over there, they just shuffle around there. But that was decided that should end. In New York also, they had this principle of having the bicyclists protecting the parked cars. That should end. New York has been a little bit dominated by traffic for many years. But now, a new time is coming with a greener and greater New York. And actually, all this is, is, is very clever words about that by making uh, more for, for walking and bicycling, you can have a much better city. And that the cities in this world, is not, the global world, are now competing heavily about being attractive, being livable, being places where you would like to invest, places where you like to live, places where you will visit and have conferences, whatever. They are competing heavily. And in this global competition, New York wants to be the leader. And so they started, as they do in America, they started with the bank. 
in no time to speak of, they were full speed into making bicycle lanes all over the city. And they put up more bicycle lanes than we have in Copenhagen, but they've done it in three years. It's also slightly bigger, I would say. But you can see them all over the place. Also, they've had a new problem, because not only should they make infrastructure for bicyclists, they should also teach the population to bicycle. They should develop a bicycle culture. So half the energy is going into making bicycle infrastructure, and the other half is into introducing a bicycle culture. One of the things is that they close major streets in the Sundays and have people enjoy themselves walking and biking up and down in car-free bicycle and walking-oriented streets. Also, they realized in New York that they didn't have a Champs-Élysées. They didn't have a Swanson Street, really. And then their eyes fell on Broadway. Maybe we could use Broadway. And then they realized maybe we didn't need Broadway that much for traffic. Then they started to experiment by putting in bike lanes. That was all right. Then to expand the sidewalk. That was all. They also worked well, except that the sidewalk should be next to the old sidewalk and the bicycle lane on the outside. But that's further down Broadway now. And then they realized that if they close Broadway in all the spots where Broadway crosses the avenues, they could have four times Trafalgar Square down the length of, they could have um, 11 times more space for people. So being in New York, this is the spring of 2009, this is spring 2009, Herald Square at Broadway, and this is the summer. 2009. And this is Times Square 2009 in the spring, and this is Times Square a little bit later in the summer. It was all done as an experiment uh, where the mayor said, oh, it's only an experiment, we're just uh, testing out something. And then half a year later he came out and said, it's not an experiment no more. It's the biggest success we've had in New York for almost 100 years. It will stay forever. And now they don't sell T-shirts with I love New York, but I sat on Times Square. And they, they've been really wild about this one. This is the, the front cover of the New Yorker, where they've taken the prairie and the bison, and everybody is having a jolly good time, recreational time on Times Square. And again, looking at these various city prices, um, New York has just got the very famous um, Singapore prize for best city in the world. Uh, and if you look closer, you can see that the first one, Melbourne was runner-up, and second time it was given Copenhagen, and Malmö was runner-up. So all this people-oriented planning is something which gives more livable cities and gives better economy, and is now being more or less uh, used worldwide. There's this song from Broadway, Frank Sinatra, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Melbourne, Melbourne, Melbourne. Um, what, what, what is going on now? Oh yeah, now, now I'm, 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 I'm into Moscow. And, uh, and, and, and that is, 
uh, the, the mayor told me, can you humanize Moscow in, in 12 months? And I said, yeah, but maybe it takes a little bit more, but we'll, we'll, this is, this is sidewalk from Main Street. And this is a typical pedestrian crossing. In, they, they have this idea that freedom from communism is a right to park everywhere. They don't pay any parking fee because they would not be happy about that, I was told. Um, also, the pedestrians are not having such a great time. They're having a long time, um, and it's not so easy to get around. All this is changing now rapidly. They are introducing parking fees, and they are... Uh, actually, all my books have come out in Russian, and I can assure you they will be forced to read them. And just when we are in the big, the big, the big things which you can be happy about as a, as an elderly planner, they've taken the parking off the sidewalks in just half a year. Isn't that fantastic? That is what makes your heart sing. That world is going forward, and soon we will have Moscow humanized. Maybe, whatever. It's hard work. But this is to show that this kind of thinking is now being adopted from one end of the world to the other. And that is for an, an old city planner, where much of my work and my research started here in Melbourne, that is something which makes one really happy and really proud. And I shall show you at the end the thing in my world which I've been most proud of and most happy about. We are in Amman, in Jordan, and in the poor end of the city, um, in East Amman, uh, there was this area with a lot of Palestinian refugees, and there was this, this nondescript area in front of a famous or important mosque. Then we realized that there was nowhere where these people could have fresh air and the kids could play, whatever. And together with the city, um, uh, we made the plans. And then, a couple of years ago, I was back in Amman, and the mayor took me proudly out and showed that now this area has been transformed into a wonderful place where the kids can play and where dignity of man can be unfolded and that they can celebrate uh, their, their neighborhood and have a, a wonderful heart in this neighborhood. That makes me proud that these things can happen in areas like this. Welcome to the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Gell. I'd now like to open um, uh, questions to the audience. Um, we have two um, students who have volunteered um, with microphones on each end. So if we have any questions for Professor Gill. Hi, thank you very much for a great inspiring talk. Um, most of us live in the suburbs. I was wondering what ideas you might have for transforming the suburbs into more socially um, amenable places. 
fancy to have this question here in Melbourne because up in Europe and around the world we are looking to the um, to some of the plans which have been formulated exactly here in Melbourne about what to do with suburbs and this about that you can have many more people living at the same area of city you can actually double the inhabitants of Melbourne without building in any greenfield outside the city by just intensifying the building construction along the tram lines, along the bus lines and, and the train lines. And in this way, by just touching a little bit of the suburbs, you can actually make the conditions in all the suburbs much better because everybody will be closer to services if if, if densification of city is done in the suburbs along the, the public transportation lines. So it's very interesting that the world is looking to this plan from Melbourne as the most relevant answer to suburban um, problems which all cities have. Uh, in America they are abandoning suburbs, they are closing them down uh, if they are far enough from the city because they cannot um, sustain them and when people get old and old and many go broke and every third house is an old person sitting then they evacuate them and put them together in one suburb and, and erase the other three mm -hmm. things like that because this, the idea of the suburb was cheap gasoline and the cheap gasoline we don't have no more and we will not come back so we have to find smart ways of doing things and I think one of the most interesting plans I've seen have been generated here in Melbourne. I, I hope that it's widely known, this plan. Sorry? No, but, but we can hope, can't we? <laughs> Professor Gar. Thanks very much for your presentation. I just want to ask about issues of homeless people and how we can contribute to safety for homeless people. I'm not wanting to be critical, but you did make the comment that nobody is forced to be in the cities, but I think for homeless people it can be a different issue. Um, they might see that differently. Clearly, sociable places are going to be safer for homeless people. But do you have any other comments about how we can contribute to safety for homeless people? And I'm thinking also of the conflicts between businesses, as occurs in Melbourne, who want young people using skateboards basically to disappear and who ask the police, repeatedly ask the police to get rid of them. And the police have gone along with this to the extent of even confiscating the skateboards of younger people. I'm just thinking of that as a conflict in terms of the use of public space issues of economic disparity and power and if you address these issues in your books my question is not to criticize you but just to raise these issues and in a context of having really enjoyed and valued your presentation thanks yeah i i'm not sure i i, I heard everything or understood everything but it was basically about the situation of homeless people in the cities was it yeah and I think that I will refrain from trying to answer this. I, I'm, I've been working and writing and researching about 
putting people first in planning. And of course, that will also encompass uh, people who are, um, are old people, uh, invalids, uh, homeless people, people who are not so fortunate in life. So this whole attitude to put people first will actually have to deal with, with everybody. I'll not go into details. I heard today, this morning, uh, Bob Doyle explaining how he was doing a new policy here in Melbourne, uh, which sounded very interesting, and maybe he has told everybody about it, but, um, and I'll not go into details. It's just that this people-first policy will have to encompass all people without being specific, because I don't know too much about that specific problem. I think we have, we have, carefully, we have carefully covered the whole area. Uh, Jan, uh, after 30 years in Australia, I went to my city of Wrocław, Poland, and thank you very much for what they've done over there. Thank you. It's a beautiful place now. Wrocław, Poland. Um, I didn't understand that. Okay. Okay. That's good news. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Another question? Don't be shy. I thought it was a really, really good point that you made about um, Sydney actually communicating what their plans were to people. And I have not seen nearly as, uh, as much of that as I would like, even in, in Melbourne. I wondered, is this something that you have, is this idea something that you've seen catching on uh, in cities around the world, or is it still uh, not really touched upon by people? I was mentioning because I have been very impressed by this policy which they adopt in, in Sydney. And I think it's very important that the people in the, in the neighborhoods are informed about the plans and the wider perspective of, of these plans so that it's not about harassing the people who are parked there or there, but it's about a wider strategy to have a more green, sustainable city. And I think that's a very wise thing to do. And I, I mention it as, as a, an idea for other people to take up if they think it's worth it. Another question? From this side of the room, maybe this time? We've had more questions from here than from there. Come here, come out now. <laughs> Thanks for your presentation, John. As a student of the landscape architecture, uh, my question is not regard to all of this presentation, uh, but this is maybe a general question. Uh, and I really want to know, uh, how did you get your inspiration about all of this designing? Or in summary, I can ask, how jungle becomes jungle? Thank you. 
if I understand correctly, that was how did um, Professor Yale get his inspiration for his uh, work and designs? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I did mention that I had this this traumatic experience as a young architect to be married to a psychologist who came with all these questions. But actually, there's a wider story because in, in the 60s was a very interesting period where many doors were opened and the profession started to work together. And many questions about quality of life was raised, especially in the young generation. And... Uh, that was when my interest in this borderland, and that's also when I realized that the borderland between architecture, planning, and psychology, sociology, that borderland was very little investigated, and we knew very little about the effects of what we did as planners and architects on the lifestyles and the livability of cities. And so we knew very little about people, and that was the start of this long life where I have continuously studied uh, life and the built environment together to see how the built environment influences life and to come up with ideas about how by studying life we can make better uh, built environment which could support life in a better way. So, um, and now it is almost a movement, I would say, that there are many people studying this and they, it's being increasingly taught in schools of architecture and planning, whatever. It's realized that there is a big effect of what we built on the lifestyles and the livability of places. And uh, to me, it's, it's a great, great joy to see that, that the wind is coming now from behind and, and more and more cities and places and also more and more schools of architecture and planning take up this. And this example of my humble scriptures, which are being translated all over the world in no time to speak of, that is, of course, very encouraging if only we can have the Chinese to read them in time. That's my big worry. But we have the books. And, and everything we know, uh, I know, is, is written down in the books. And just to, to maybe end this, I'll, I'll say that, that these, some of these books were in English and, and they actually have, have brought them over here, I realize. And if some of you would like the, uh, me to, to write a greeting, I will happily do that until midnight or something like that. But um, I think that... Um, so in my life, the, the visits and the studies I've done in Melbourne have been very, very important. And I, have, I, I came to like Australians extremely much back in the 70s. I've loved you ever since. I have this Danish and Australian flag here, uh, which, which symbolizes this dual citizenship. And I think that Melbourne and Copenhagen are the two best cities in the world. That could be a good way to stop this. <laughs> <laughs>